Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast, a part of the Agora Podcast Network. I'm your host, Heather Tesco, and I'm a storyteller who makes history accessible because I believe it's a pathway to understanding who we are, our place in the universe, and being so much more deeply connected to our own humanity. So this is a supplemental episode, and it's Nathan Amin's talk at TudorCon this past year on Henry VII and the rise of the Tudor King. I realized as I was going through all my various files and folders that you guys, I have so many amazing interviews and Tudor Summit videos and so much stuff. There's probably about 60 or 70 interviews um, that were just things that came through my Tudor Learning Circle or through the Tudor Summits, just random little talks I did with people. And I have all of these videos. So I'm extracting the audio from them and I'm going to start posting them here on the feed because they're good and I don't want them just sitting in a Dropbox folder somewhere without people giving them some attention because they deserve more attention. So that's what this is. But before I bring on Nathan's content, I have just a couple of things to say. First off, the 2021 Tutor Planners have arrived at the warehouse and they're shipping to all of the Indiegogo people. So if you are an Indiegogo person who supported the 2021 Tutor Planner, you shall be getting yours very soon. It's in the mail or it has arrived already. Um, So that's very exciting. And they're beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. If you did not support the Tutor Planner at the Indiegogo and you still want to buy one, we have some left. There's not a lot. I'm going to be real honest with you. That Indiegogo took off way more than I thought it was going to. So there's not a ton left, but there are some. So you can go to my shop at tutorfair.com and get one in time for the holidays. I have one more announcement to make. Starting on the 23rd, so not quite today, but on Monday, Black Friday, has arrived with my new audio course, Kick-Ass Tutor Women, which is 50% off on Himalaya Learning, an audio learning platform that provides an extensive library of courses from the world's greatest minds like Malcolm Gladwell, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, and more. You can take advantage of the discount and learn something new this year. Go to Himalaya.com slash Heather to claim your 50% off discount now. 
Again, that starts on Monday and it's through Black Friday week. So Himalaya.com slash Heather starting on Monday to get your 50% discount. So I hope to see you over there and I hope you enjoy my course. I had so much fun putting together that course. And there's really famous women and some not so famous women. Um, It was really a lot of fun to do and I'm grateful that Himalaya Learning had me do it. So there's that. All right, let's get right into Nathan Amin talking about Henry VII. is amazing. He's a friend of the show. He's been on here a number of times. Um, and I hope you check out his books and learn more about him and check out his website and everything like that, because he is uh, a really an impressive person. And I'm glad that I have gotten to know him. So enjoy Nathan's TudorCon talk. Hello there, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to hear me speak uh, today for Tudicon. Uh, the topic of my talk is going to be uh, a story about a king who, in my opinion, is one of the most underappreciated figures who ever ruled this country. The enduring image of Henry VII, the first Tudor king, is that of a tight-fisted miser, uh, a boring accountant king who presided over a dark and tedious reign, at least until his son came along to really shake things up, uh, for better or for worse. And yet, as I hope to show today during this discussion, during Henry VII's reign, there is an abundance of drama to be found, not least from the two pretenders who try to steal his hard-won crown. So let's start with a bit of context. Who was Henry VII? And how did this usurper become king in the first place? Uh, Henry was born in Pembroke Castle on the 28th of January 1457, the son of Margaret Beaufort, heiress of a great English dynasty and a great granddaughter of Edward III. And also Edmund Tudor, Earl of Richmond, himself the product of a secret relationship between the Welshman Owain Tidder and the French Dowager Queen Catherine de Valois. Now, through his ancestry, young Henry could claim descent from English, Welsh, French, and even Bavarian royalty. Though it has to be said, no more or less than most of his contemporaries. He was nothing special, just another noble mouth to feed, and certainly not a king in the making. Henry's birth was ill-timed. A civil war was brewing in England between the rival factions of York and Lancaster, a period in which one chronicler claimed there was an unhappy plague of division in which courages were inflamed with malice. And despite his tender years, the boy's position was precarious. On his father's side, his half-uncle was the weak Lancastrian king, Henry VI, whilst another uncle, Jasper Tudor, was that king's most ardent follower. On his mother's side, Henry's Beaufort relations were the driving force behind the Lancastrian faction. After a series of battles between 1459 and 1461, 
the Yorkists managed to displace the Lancastrians on the throne. At just four years old, young Henry was sent to live with the Herbert family, who were supporters and traditional rivals of the Tudors, where he would remain for the next nine years, a Lancastrian boy brought up by Yorkists. Now, the Lancastrians briefly regained the throne in 1470, but when the Yorkists conclusively swept back to power just eight months later, killing most of the senior Lancastrians, the now-teenaged Henry Tudor was suddenly a target. Reunited with his uncle Jasper, the pair were hunted down through Wales by a small Yorkist force with bad intentions, only evading capture and likely death by following some underground tunnels beneath the town of Temby. They reached the harbour where a small vessel took them out to sea. Henry Tudor would spend the next 14 years in penniless exile, casually and continually looking over his shoulder and avoiding Yorkist plots for his capture. And yet, after the death of the Yorkist king, Edward IV, in spring 1483, this little-known Welsh earl living abroad was recast as a potential English king by dissident Yorkists who were unhappy with the rise of Richard III. Henry's maternal Beaufort ancestry was amplified so that he was somewhat successful as a prospective candidate for the crown. Now, if we want to talk about pretenders, defined as someone who claims or aspires to a title or position that someone else has, then nobody encapsulated that concept more than Henry Tudor between 1483 and 1485. We could call him the original pretender, if you will. Now, launching his invasion in the summer of 1485, Upon landing in Mill Bay, West Wales, on the 7th of August, Henry, perhaps aware of how unlikely success was, fell to his knees and cried, Judge me, Lord, and fight my cause. After a 200-mile march, by the 22nd of August, 1485, Henry Tudor was stood on a field in rural Leicestershire with his forces assembled before him facing the considerably larger force of Richard III. The fighting, when it happened, was fierce and bloody. Richard himself must have seen an opportunity to take matters into his own hands and end the battle sooner rather than later. For we know at some point he suddenly charged for where the pretender Henry Tudor was standing, cutting his way through his adversaries with great courage. Though Richard fought, in the words of one chronicler, manfully in the thickest press of his enemies, his valour would be unrewarded. For Henry's step-uncle, William Stanley, who had been watching from the sidelines, suddenly intercepted on Tudor's behalf and attacked Richard with an almighty stampede. Surrounded, overwhelmed, overpowered, and ultimately pulled from his horse, having defiantly declared that he would die like a king or win victory 
in this field, Richard III was killed. The House of York was no more. In their place stood a new king, a man, according to the foreign chronicler Philip de Comines. A man without power, without money, without right to the crown of England, and without any reputation but that what his person and deportment obtained for him. That man's name was Henry Tudor, now Henry VII. A perfect example of a pretender who became king, and in truth, the embodiment of a rags to royal riches tale. Henry was crowned king on the 30th of October 1485 in Westminster Abbey, and three months later, in January 1486, Henry married Elizabeth of York, the daughter of Edward IV. Within weeks, she was pregnant with an heir that would symbolise the physical union between the houses of York and Lancaster. England, it seemed, was finally at peace after 30 years of bitter conflict. And yet, soon thereafter, Henry, in the timeless words of his court historian Polydor Virgil, began to be harassed by the treachery of his opponents and assaulted frequently thereafter by the forces of his enemies and the insurrections of his own subjects, he evaded peril, not without effort. And so we come to the first pretender, or perhaps imposter, who challenged Henry for his throne, Lambert Simnel. By late 1486, it was generally presumed the children of Edward IV, the so-called princes in the tower, had been killed their demise having paved the way for Henry Tudor's rise. There was still another potential Yorkist heir alive, however, albeit under lock and key in the same Tower of London in which his young cousins had supposedly met the end. Edward, the 17th Earl of Warwick. Now, Warwick was the only surviving son of George, Duke of Clarence, the scheming brother of Edward IV and Richard III, who had been executed for treason in 1478. Through his father, young Edward of Warwick unquestionably had royal blood that placed him very high in the Yorkist succession. Though, as his father had died a traitor, he had been conveniently, if legally, passed over, forgotten even, by both Richard III and Henry VII. When Henry became king, he generally enjoyed the support of the Yorkists, formerly loyal to Edward IV. But some of those who had been loyal to Richard III or George of Clarence decided not to support him. This small band of insurgents now transferred their, loyal, their loyalty and their allegiance to George of Clarence's 10-year-old son, Warwick. Now, of course, Warwick was locked in the tower and could not be used to front any rebellion. So an imposter was found, the boy history remembers as Lambert Simnel. 
When Henry caught wind, there was a conspiracy brewing. He actually paraded the real Warwicks through London, hoping to ruin any credibility the rebellion had. Though he failed to prevent the plot gaining support in Ireland. Now, Ireland during the Wars of the Roses had been staunchly Yorkist, and George of Clarence had in fact been born in Dublin. So when some plotters surfaced in the city claiming the boy with them was Clarence's son Warwick, support was forthcoming. The conspiracy also gained the support of Margaret of York, the sister of Edward IV, Richard III and George of Clarence, who maintained a deep hatred of Henry VII for deposing the Yorkist dynasty from the English throne. The most noticeable defection to the plotters, however, and the real head of the rebellion, was another of Margaret's Yorkist nephews, John de la Poole, the Earl of Lincoln. Now, Lincoln's defection is curious. As the real Warwick's cousin, he himself had a plausible claim to the English throne, and one wonders just why he threw his lot in with a conspiracy that was nominally fronted by a boy who was almost certainly an imposter. There's many theories about this, but I personally can only surmise Lincoln was either using Lambert Simnel to launch an invasion with the aim of eventually placing the real Warwick on the throne, or perhaps he had secret designs for the throne himself. On the 24th of May 1487, an astonishing spectacle took place within Dublin Cathedral when Lambert Simnel was actually crowned Edward, King of England. So these rebels weren't just claiming he was a king, they made him a king. Their next step was to invade England and on the 4th of June, a largely Irish army with some German mercenaries and a handful of English Yorkists landed in Lancashire. Now, with a 10-year-old boy, their chosen leader, the rebels marched through the north, canvassing support amongst Richard III's old Yorkshire stomping ground with moderate success. They received no backing from the nobility, however, and when they approached York, the mightiest city in the north, the city remained loyal to Henry VII. They had come too, too far to turn back, however, and Lincoln was completely committed to trying the fortunes of war. Henry VII had, after all, won the crown against the odds. The stage was set for both armies to meet, which occurred near a village called Stoke in Nottinghamshire. Now, unlike Richard III at Bosworth, most of Henry's nobility turned out for him, and his army was vastly superior to that of the rebels. The battle was fought on the 16th of June, 1487, and according to one chronicler, both sides fought with the bitterest energy, so that for some time the struggle was fought with no advantage to either side. The rebel Irishmen, however, were ill-equipped to fend off the onslaught for too long, 
prompted one chronicler to later describe how they were stricken down and slain like dull and brute beasts. When the lines broke and a royal victory was assured, the slaughter started in earnest with thousands of rebels slain, including the Earl of Lincoln. Henry, a chronicle recounted simply, was greatly pleased that he had overcome his enemies. Though the fact that he did pay the substantial figure of £42 for wine to be brought to him suggests some party was had thereafter. So what of the false boy king? Well, he was captured after the battle and brought before the king to be investigated. Just a child who had little influence in what had occurred, Henry ruled he was but an innocent lad who was too young to have himself committed any offence. In the inquiry which followed, it was revealed the boy's name was Lambert Simnel, a child of ten years of age, son to Thomas Simnel, a joiner of Oxford. Now, as the name Lambert Simnel has an air of eccentricity to the modern year, it has led some to believe that this must have been an invented moniker created by the Tudor regime to hide the boy's real identity. But there is evidence that Lambert as a given name was used in England throughout the 15th century. Lambert Fosdyke was appointed abbot of Croyland Abbey in 1484, for example. Whilst there are various references in the Chancery Rolls to men such as Lambert Brancaster of Norfolk, Lambert Salter of Lincoln, Lambert Peavy of Lincolnshire, and Lambert Lee of Sussex. Simnel is a name more difficult to pinpoint, but it does exist. In June 1406, there's a Roger Simnel of Kent, and in 1417, a Richard Simnel of Lincoln. Perhaps these men were related to young, Lin young Lambert. And most pertinently, however, is the existence of a Thomas Simnel residing in Oxford in 1479, where he rented property from Osney Abbey. Was this the same Thomas Simnel mentioned as Lambert's father? Surely, if the authorities were to make up a name, why not uh, make up something more instantly forget forgetful than a name we still remember 500 years later? And what became of Lambert Simnel after the battle? Well, Henry put him to work in the royal kitchens, and right in two decades after this boy had been crowned a king in Dublin, Porridor Virgil reported, Lambert is still alive to this very day, having been promoted trainer of the King's Hawks. Henry's victory after the Battle of Stokefield in 1487 was broadcast throughout the country, including in York, where it was declared Almighty God had sent the king victory of his enemies and rebels. This had been a considerable challenge to his crown, and on a different day, perhaps an opportunist defection uh, or inclement change in weather, might have swung the day the other way. But for the time being, at least, Henry could relax and get on with being king, have more children, and generally run his kingdom. 
but just when he thought it was safe to go back in the water, so to speak, a new pretender was, in the words of Virgil, raised from the dead. During the winter of 1491, a remarkably well-dressed young figure with a sharp mind and flowing blonde locks confidently glided through the streets of Cork Island. Aged in his mid-teens, he had arrived suddenly and without warning. Now, rumours circulated that he was the bastard son of Richard III, before word spread that he was, in fact, Richard of York, the younger son of Edward IV, one of the princes in the Tower, who had been presumed dead for the last eight years. This supposed prince, who history remembers better as Perkin Warbeck, was quickly lauded by a small group of agitators as the rightful King of England. Though the Irish were somewhat hesitant to offer support to another anti-Tudor revolt, having suffered heavy losses during the Lambert Simnel affair. In early 1492, therefore, the young man was invited to France, then in a state of war with England, where he was honoured with a retinue considered fitting for a man of royal descent. Now, this was very provocative behaviour from the French, and it drew a heavy response from Henry VII. In October 1492, Henry invaded France at the head of the largest army ever assembled by a King of England in the 15th century. Though there were other reasons for the invasion, when Henry brought the French King to the negotiating table, one of his main terms was that Warbeck should be expelled from the country. If Warbeck left France, Henry and his army would leave France. It worked, but the conspiracy was far from over. Instead of giving up, Warbeck and his small band of insurgents uh, sought refuge in Flanders at the court of the woman he was calling his aunt, Margaret of York. Now, if Margaret had freely given support to Lambert Simnel without ever meeting him, once she encountered Warbeck in person, she wholeheartedly threw her support behind his cause. Tudor chroniclers treated her warm reception of him with scorn. Virgil said, so great was her pleasure that her happiness seemed to have disturbed the balance of her mind. Whilst Edward Hall believed that she had fallen into such an unmeasurable joy that she had almost lost her wit and senses. Margaret wasn't restrained in her support either. She even wrote on her new protege's behalf to the King and Queen of Spain, claiming, When I gazed on this only male remnant of our family, who had come through so many perils and misfortunes, I was deeply moved, and out of this natural affection, into which both necessity and the rights of blood were drawing me, I embraced him as my only nephew and my only son. Now this is actually an important point that may betray just why she sponsored this pretender. Margaret of York had very little family left at this point in her life. No husband, 
no children and no brothers. Was she perhaps looking to fill a void? Either way, after nearly two years in Flanders trying to raise support, in the summer of 1495, Warbeck sailed for England with a modest army to claim his Yorkist crown. Anticipating that the men of Kent would rise in support of this reborn son of Edward IV. Now, instead, as he watched horrified from his ship, when 300 of his men landed on the beach near Deal, they were ambushed by the locals and utterly destroyed. Those captured alive were taken to London, where they were sentenced to death anyway by a king losing patience. It was a catastrophe. Warbeck raised anchor and sailed through the English Channel until he reached Ireland once more, where he laid siege to Waterford. When some of his men attempted to land, for the second time in weeks, they were slaughtered by those who had elected to remain loyal to Henry VII. And again, Warbeck was forced to flee. We don't know his immediate whereabouts for the next few months, but in November 1495, he surfaced in yet another country that happened to be on the verge of war with England, Scotland. The ambitious young king of Scotland, James IV, was hell-bent on manufacturing a war with England to raise his profile. And Warbeck was the perfect cover for this. Fresh from his failures in Kent and Ireland, the pretender say, swept into Stirling Castle in late 1495, where he formally sought James's aid. And though some members of the King's Council produced many arguments to show that the affair was, quote, nothing but a deceit, and that this young man should not be trusted, the bottom line was James wanted a war. Together, James and Warbeck, or rather Prince Richard, Duke of York, as he was known in Scotland, started preparing their invasion, during which the king even gave his guest a wife, a distant cousin by marriage named Catherine Gordon. Warbeck would even refer to her in a love letter as the brightest ornament of Scotland. A wife, an army, a new royal mentor, things were starting to look up for Perkin Warbeck. Now the Scottish-backed invasion of England, Warbeck's second attempt at invading England, took place in September 1496. And just before the Scottish army crossed the border, the self-styled Prince Richard of England issued a bold proclamation to garner support calling Henry VII our extreme and mortal enemy, who had imagined, compassed and wrought all the subtle way and means he could devise to our final destruction, insomuch as he hath not only falsely surmised us to be a feigned person. But just like the Kent attempt, this invasion proved a farce. For it was shown Warbeck, if truly a Prince of York, shed none of his ancestors' military bearing. Now, whereas Edward IV, Richard III, and even the Earl of Lincoln had all ridden headstrong into battle 
fearing no one. Warbeck, by contrast, was shaken to his very core by the ferocity of border warfare and, alarmed at the lack of support, fled back to Edinburgh on the very first day. It was another humiliation. Now, though Scotland and England remained at war for most of the next year, Warbeck maintained a low profile before quietly departing Scotland in the summer of 1497. Another attempted landing in Ireland failed, and so, in September that year, having lost Irish, French, Burgundian and Scottish support, Warbeck surfaced in Cornwall for a last throw of the dice. Now, the Cornish had recently risen in rebellion against Henry VII themselves, and having been crushed in battle by the king's army, were simmering in resentment. Throughout his campaign, it is undeniable Warbeck only seemed to attract support from those who had grievances with Henry VII for their own reasons, rather than simply for who he claimed to be. So, with a modest number of Cornish men, Warbeck marched to the West Country, but once he reached Taunton, received word that Henry had raised another mighty royal army. And as he had crushed Simnel and the Cornish, was now marching straight towards Warbeck with several thousand men. Rather than fight, Warbeck once more lost his nerve. He just didn't have it in him to stand and fight. Deserting his men, he fled into hiding, but was tracked to Boat Bowley Abbey in Hampshire. Once there, Court, realising his affairs had fallen into a most critical state and that no further hope of making good remained, he finally surrendered. Henry had Warbeck paraded through London, where the people were eager to see this fake prince, as it seemed to them miraculous that a man of such humble origins should have been bold enough to seek to acquire by guile so great a kingdom. It was a very public humiliation. Now, like Simnel, the magnanimous Henry granted Warbeck his life, though he was imprisoned in the Tower of London. After 18 months, however, the pretender attempted to escape, when news reached the king he had also allegedly been conspiring with none other than the Earl of Warwick. And his fate was sealed. It didn't help that Henry VII was being urged on by the Spanish, who did not want to send their daughter, Catherine of Aragon, to England to marry Prince Arthur, Henry's heir, until all threats to their future were extinguished. On the 23rd of November, 1499, Perkin Warbeck was hanged like a commoner at Tyburn and quickly buried in an unmarked grave. In the harsh judgment of Polydor Virgil, this was the end of someone who had spent years twisting falsehood into truth, truth into falsehood, but was ultimately the victim 
of his own deceit. So the key question here, of course, is was Perkin Warbeck truly a Yorkist prince? Well, contrary to common belief, there is little evidence Henry actually feared Perkin Warbeck's claim. For as early as 1493, the king was writing letters revealing he had received intelligence. This pretender was nothing but a feigned lad called Warbeck of Turnai. A French ambassador to the Scottish court in late 1495 claimed there was evidence confirming Warbeck was a fraud. Whilst in April 1496, the Spanish interrogated some Portuguese merchants who claimed to know the pretender as a youth when he left Tonay for Portugal to find work. It was claimed by the Portuguese that this boy was the son of a boatman, with one of those quizzed, a herald originally from Tonay himself, even saying he knew the name of the father, John Osbeck. During one trip home, this herald even claimed that John had asked about his son's welfare in Portugal. The rumours were rife long before he was caught that Warbeck was a fraud. As for Warbeck himself, well, before capture, he roundly claimed his name was Richard Plantagenet, second son of Edward IV and the rightful Duke of York. The story that he spun to whoever gave him the time of day was that he had been imprisoned after his father's death in 1483. And shortly afterwards, his elder brother, Edward V, was put to death and that he was handed over to an unnamed lord to be killed. When the moment came, however, this would-be cutthroat apparently took pity on him and he was instead spirited away to safety. Warbeck said he was thereafter taken under the wing of two unnamed protectors, leading a miserable nomadic life for nearly eight years, during which he travelled throughout Western Europe. After one of his protectors died and another abandoned him, he emigrated to Portugal and from there to Ireland, where his true identity was revealed, something which prompted his six-year campaign for the throne. Now, this is a frustratingly vague story, and one with which Perkin Warbeck persisted for several years to gain support and sympathy in various countries. Post-capture, however, he changed his tune, and the story was one which comes close to corroborating the version which was revealed by earlier investigations. He confessed that he was born in Tournay to John Osbeck, son of Derek Osbeck, the same name suggested by the Portuguese. His step-grandfather was the Dean of the Boatmen's Guild, perhaps giving rise to the belief he was the son of a boatman. Many of those Warbeck named as relatives have since been traced in the medieval town records of Tournay. There is a record, for example, of John de Warbeck, son of Derek de Warbeck, 
Tonnet at this time was a French-speaking part of the Low Countries. Uh, in fact, it is still French-speaking. And this may have been why the Irish Earl of Kildare referred to him derogatively as the French lad in 1493. So we have two stories from Warbeck himself. He claimed, firstly, he was the real prince, spirited away from prison by an anonymous guard, whilst his elder brother, Edward V, was killed. And another, that he was just an imposter from Tonnet, put forward by a Yorkist conspiracy to depose Henry VII. Which narrative is true? Uh, perhaps tellingly, the Chronicle of London says that upon the scaffold just before he was hanged, Warbeck admitted he was never the son of Edward IV. Personally, I need much more convincing that Warbeck was a Yorkist prince. I find his escape from captivity uh, implausible and unexplained, and his sudden appearance in Ireland at the very moment a few Yorkist diehards happened to be in the area, far too coincidental. There is an abundance of evidence to suggest he was indeed from Tournay. Not everything can be cynically dismissed as Tudor propaganda. I guess, however, uh, this matter will never be unanimously settled, and like many things in history, this will simply depend on the bias one brings to the subject. The irrefutable fact, however, is that one man emerged victorious from these years of strife, the original pretender himself, Henry VII. Between 1485 and 1499, he had invaded England, won the crown in battle against the odds, married the princess, established a thriving dynasty, filled the treasury, earned continental reputation and recognition from his peers and the papacy, defeated a Cornish rebellion and vanquished two serious challenges for his crown. When later describing the character of Henry VII, Polydor Virgil said, his spirit was distinguished, wise and prudent. His mind was brave and resolute and never, even at moments of the greatest danger, deserted him. I think in describing someone who has a boy in Wales an exile abroad and then a king in England overcame astonishing odds to die a rich old man in his own bed. He hit the nail absolutely on the head. Thank you very much for listening today. Wasn't that great? Wasn't that an amazing talk? Nathan is awesome. So just a quick reminder again that the Tudor Planner is on my website at tutorfair.com and the very special Himalaya Learning Discount. Go to Himalaya.com, H-I-M-A-L-A-Y-A, Himalaya.com slash Heather, starting on Monday to get your 50% discount on the Himalaya platform. All right. Have a great week. Um, 
I know Thanksgiving is weird this year for the Americans who are trying to celebrate via Zoom. And I know it's been a hard year for everyone. And I hope that we can all focus on the things that have gone right for us this year as well and have some time of gratitude and grace. So I will release a new episode next week, um, but it won't be in time for Thanksgiving. <laughs> anyway, have a great rest of your week. Have a great weekend. And I will talk with you again soon. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.